Welcome to the Crosswalk Church Podcast, Phoenix, Arizona. Bibles, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 18 to 25. We're starting a new uh, series this morning, one that's been a little bit controversial in the title. The Foolishness of God. What are we really saying with that title to this series? Are we saying that God is foolish? Are we saying that the, the things that are written in the Bible here are not to be believed? Are we saying that what God has for us in his love, his amazing promises, are too good to be true? Well, as we go through this series in the next five weeks today and the four weeks that follow, I hope that you'll see that exactly as the, past, as the Apostle Paul wrote here about the foolishness of God is true, and it wasn't just true 2,000 years ago, it's true today, that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So let's start by looking at what the Apostle Paul had to say about the foolishness of God. Our series is based on this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Here's what it says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is is stronger than man's strength. Take just a moment to reach inside your program and pull out your crosswalk notes. It'll be helpful to you to, uh, to follow along. As I was watching that video just a moment ago, my heart got a little bit sad because that church that's locked up, I actually have some personal history with that church. The church that's locked up is one of the oldest Lutheran churches in Phoenix. And... The church that my wife grew up in in Central Phoenix is actually a direct descendant of that church whose doors are now locked. In fact, if you turn around and look in the corner of the gym back there, you'll notice that there's a little place where there's a speaker. And uh, at one point, when that church closed, the organ of that church was donated to Arizona Lutheran Academy. And now its doors are locked, and as you saw, there's a for sale sign uh, on the fence. And it makes me sad to think that there are so many people in our world today who are no longer going to God for their answers. And they are saying to themselves, and maybe it's not they, maybe it's we are saying to ourselves, why do I need God to provide answers to my questions? After all, there are so many answers out there. We have the internet, we've got libraries, we've got experts. We can pull ourselves together and gather the collective wisdom. Do we really need God anymore? 
to provide the answers to our questions. And isn't God, after all, really just a bunch of hooey, a bunch of foolishness? What I want to do this morning is I want to delve into why the Apostle Paul recognized that even in his day, 2,000 years ago, there were a lot of people that thought that this whole business of God is foolishness, that God wasn't meeting their needs. Some of them, as he says in this text, were, were looking for miracles, for powerful things to happen in their lives. And others were looking for wisdom, and they weren't finding it in the world around them. And because they hadn't yet met Jesus Christ, they weren't finding it in their God either. And so Paul comes to them, and he shares this amazing, amazing message of Jesus Christ with them. And, he, and his conclusion is this one that comes at the end of this passage. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Why? Why is it that so often we fail to see God's wisdom? Well, this morning I want to take you through some things that I hope will help you get a bead on why God can sometimes sound foolish, why that perception even exists. And I want to take you through three things, maybe things that have happened even in your own life that you you would have at one point said, man, I don't know if I can buy this God stuff. I had that point in my life all the way up until I was in high school. I was not a Christ follower. And I, I thought God was truly just a bunch of foolishness. I, I had gone through uh, my parents' divorce. I had watched my father fall ill from alcoholism, destroying his, his liver and his kidneys. And, and finally, when I was a sophomore in high school, watch him die. Painfully. And I, and I, I was questioning the whole thing. Is, is God real or is this just really a bunch of foolishness? But as some wonderful friends kept pulling me back to God, I came to realize that there's a, there's a whole different perspective that we can have on God. And what better day to talk about that whole different perspective that we can have on God than on Easter Sunday. Imagine how those disciples must have felt as they all ran away in fear at Jesus' arrest. Imagine what they must have felt what perspective they must have had about this Messiah that they had been following for three years when they heard that he had been crucified, only one of them standing at the foot of that hill of Golgotha while he was crucified. The rest of them in fear, in hiding because of their fear. Imagine what they must have thought. Was all of this just foolishness? And yet Easter came. And that first Easter shined a whole new light on their perception of who Jesus was. It changed everything for them for the rest of their entire years. So here's, here's what I want to do. Let's take a look at what it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I want to pull it apart a little bit. Notice what it says in verse 18 and 19. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? 
Where's the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know what affects our perspective of God sometimes? I really think sometimes we don't expect God to be as bold as he really is. But God, he has a huge history of giving the people who follow him bold and surprising answers to the questions they have in life. I want you to think about the children of Israel crying out in all their, all their pain, right? And, and you know and I know it's when we're in pain, it's when we're in suffering that we begin to question, is God real? Is this not all foolishness? And the children of Israel in the Old Testament were crying out in slavery in Egypt. Maybe some of you watched the movie last night, The Ten Commandments. And God gave them a surprisingly bold answer. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue you from Egypt. And furthermore, the way that he's going to rescue them is really bold and surprising. Does he send in angel armies? What does he do? He sends in one guy. That guy named Moses says, don't send me. I don't want to go. I don't know how to talk to this guy, Pharaoh. Please find someone else. Even the one guy that he wants to send in is trying to get out of the job. And yet God boldly says, you are my man and you will deliver my people. Later on in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Gideon. God keeps saying, you got too many troops to go against these armies. I want you to go. He cuts his troops down and down and down from thousands until there are only 300 left. And then he says to Gideon, go, go attack those other armies. I'll be with you. Here's what I want you to write in your crosswalk notes. Sometimes we struggle and think that God is being foolish because in reality, God's answers to our questions are bold and surprising. And and they take us off guard because they're so bold and surprising. God's thinking is different from our thinking. God's thinking is big picture thinking. Think about what God says in Psalm 90 verse 2. He says, before the mountains were born, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's your God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He he sits enthroned above all of this. And so God, God doesn't look at things and pull them apart into little bits and pieces the way we sometimes are tempted to do. He's got the big picture in mind. Our God is a both and God. In Psalm 36, 7, we read how priceless God, how priceless is your unfailing love, both high and low. Among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings, both high and low. See, God doesn't just go after the guys who, who have tons of money in, their, in the bank and they got the power positions at work. Nor does he just go after the ones that are poverty stricken and have nothing. He says both high and low have a place 
in God's kingdom. People of all stripes. People of all thinking. They they all can be included through faith in Jesus Christ into God's kingdom. God is a both-and thinker. God thinks in circles, not lines. Listen to this passage. God is enthroned above the circle of the earth, Isaiah writes. You ever look at nature? See how many circles there are in nature? Our our world is shaped like a circle, shaped like a ball. Think about how we get rain, right? The water falls down out of the clouds. It collects in the rivers, goes down to the lakes, from the lakes into further rivers, down to the ocean where it's picked up again into the sky, and then it's brought back over us in one big continuous cycle and circle. God thinks that way. And too often we think in terms of opposites. God thinks in circles. It's both law and gospel that we need. We need to hear God confront us in his law and say, this is what I need in my holiness. And then we need that beautiful gospel message that says, but I'm sending you my son, Jesus to live perfectly in your place. God is a both and circular cyclical thinker. And then finally, God thinks in terms of abundance, not scarcity. In Romans five seventeen. We read, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? God wants to abundantly provide his grace to you. So put all that together. Think about that. God's a big picture thinker a both-and thinker, a circular, cyclical thinker, and he thinks in terms of abundance, not scarcity. And think how often we as human beings do the exact opposite. How, How often we think in terms of scarcity rather than abundance. How often we put things in nice, neat little boxes instead of thinking in terms of cycles. And circles. How often we exclude rather than say both and. And how often we're drilled down into the little picture rather than the big picture. And and when you think about how different God's mind and how differently it works from ours, then it's not quite so surprising to think, man, this is a God who is going to give bold, surprising answers to the questions we have in life. Let me give you an illustration of Jesus. One of my favorite stories about Jesus in the New Testament. A rich young man approaches Jesus. And he says to him, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And the Bible tells us that Jesus answers him with a with the stock answer, the one that you might expect at first. He says, have you obeyed all the commandments? And he rattles off those commandments to the rich young man. And the rich young man, pretty full of himself, says, Yes, Lord, I've been doing those since I was a little kid. I've done them all. And then Jesus, it says in the book of Mark, it says, Jesus loved this young, wealthy man. Loved him. 
And in his love, he says something really surprising to him. He says, so then, since you've obeyed all of these commandments, I want you to do just one more simple thing. Go and sell everything that you possess and give it to the poor and come and follow me. You know what the Bible tells us happened to that young man when he heard Jesus' words? Jesus' pretty bold words. It says the man's face fell. You see, I've always thought of that story as, well, Jesus said, obey all the commandments. The guy said, I've obeyed them all. And then Jesus added one more thing on. But that's not how it is. You know what Jesus really did by asking that question, by making that, that bold assertion, go sell all you possess and give it to the poor? You know what he was showing that young man? He's showing him, young man, you haven't even begun to obey the first commandment. Because you say you've obeyed them all, but your money, your possessions are your God. And the very first commandment says you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not fear anything more than you fear me. You shall not love anything more than you love me. You shall not trust anything more than you trust me. And that sad young man went away, unfortunately, not realizing that he had not even obeyed the first commandment. How many of us in our world today, because of the boldness of what Jesus teaches, have not yet realized that before God, we do not stand okay. We do not stand right We may think that we're being pretty good, that we're obeying the commandments, but like that rich young man, we need to hear Jesus' boldness and to be confronted by it and to to come to understand that we too, like that rich young man, have not followed God's commandments faithfully. That in fact, every day we've broken them and we need a Savior from our sins. We need him. In it, how wonderful it is that when we possess Jesus as our Savior, when he is in our heart and in our minds, that same boldness that he has toward us becomes ours. Take a look in your crosswalk notes. I want you to do this fill-in. The gospel breaks down old paradigms. And here's what I mean by that. In our world, we love the lovable. We love those who are kind to us. We love those who are smart and intelligent. We love those who are successful. We love those who are wealthy and beautiful. You know, they've even done studies on that. That as human beings, we naturally find ourselves more attracted to the beautiful and the wealthy and the successful. Jesus' bold paradigm flips it all on its head. And he says, I know you haven't, you you haven't kept all these commandments. I know that you're sinners, but I love you. I love you though. You're not successful. I love you though. You're, you're not wealthy. I love you though. You're not beautiful. 
I love you not as any sort of response to you. I love you simply because that's who I am. That's my paradigm, is to just love you because I am love. And that's why the Bible tells us Jesus loves sinners. It's why the Bible says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for those who are sick. And and one of the reasons why all of this seems like foolishness to the world is it's such a different paradigm, a pattern of thinking than the one we're used to. But what an awesome God we have this Easter morning that has his own way of thinking, his own bold way of thinking, his own new paradigm, a paradigm called grace in which he loves the unlovable. He loves those who don't deserve to be loved by him. And in that bold love, then he gives you boldness. Check out Proverbs 28, one, the wicked man flees though. No one pursues, but the righteous, those who know Jesus and his righteousness, they are as bold as a lion. Once we know God's boldness in Jesus Christ, it makes us bold because we know the righteousness that we have by faith in him. Paul says the same thing. Therefore, since we have such a hope in a risen Savior, a victorious Savior, we become very bold in the world around us. So here's our our first fill-in. I want you to just flip over your notes. Is God's foolishness really foolishness? Or is it really boldness? And I think the, the very first thing that I... I want you to believe this morning coming out of this text is that God's foolishness is really boldness. So how do you impress a woman? Roger Day thought that he could impress a woman in England if he told her stories about being a longtime member of the Special Air Services. I don't know if you're familiar with the SAS, the British SAS, but it's, it's sort of the British version of the Navy SEALs, okay? Roger Day met a woman in the year 2000 that he wanted to impress. Unfortunately, he didn't have any history whatsoever with the SAS, but he could make up whopper stories, And he told some big whoppers about his exploits and his expeditions as a member of the British SAS. In fact, after they got married in 2005, his wife, Maxine, he sent Maxine out to buy 17 SAS medals of valor for him so that he could wear them. To prove to her just what a brave person. He made up, again, another elaborate lie about how he had lost his original set of medals. And she went out and she bought him a whole new set of medals. Now, Roger Day was bold enough in his lying to think that he could even attend an event, a celebration with lots of other former SAS soldiers around. And... uh, and pull the lie off with them. But they spotted the fraud right away. And now he's completely exposed. 
But, but what, what do you say about this, this man? That he's purely a fraud or was he what we like to call a fool for love, right? And if you think that you could never do a Roger Day, then guys, come on. How many times have you maybe bought that jazz CD or something like that and music that you completely would never listen to on your own, but that girl that you want to take out on a date, you know she loves jazz, right? Now, admittedly, maybe that's a little milder form of what Roger Day did. But sometimes when we're a fool for love, we'll do whatever we think it takes to get the girl. There are sometimes people who think that God is a fool for love. That all those miracles that he did were maybe just fake medals. Maybe they weren't real. Maybe somehow those stories developed over time. Every Easter you can, you can see the specials on the History Channel and on TLC and all the cable channels. Sometimes even on the network channels. All trying to disprove the miracles of Jesus. And maybe just saying that there were some people out there that wanted there to be a savior because they wanted people to know about love and to, to understand about love. And that's why if you go back into what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Corinthians, if you go go to verse 21, we read this, for since in the wisdom of God The world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Is God... A fool for love, would he say anything just to get us to believe in him? Would his followers claim that he had done anything just to get more people to to share with them? Would they even be so bold as to say that Jesus rose from the grave when he never did? Well, if that's the case, then... It's kind of a funny way of going about it. Because this Jesus actually did, in his love, go through immense pain and torture. If he simply wanted to be the world's hero, why offer himself up to the Romans? He had hidden himself from them before. Why now? turn himself over to be arrested, mocked, beaten, scorned, and nailed to a cross. And and to say that the reason for all of this was that this was his way of paying for the sins of the entire world. Why go there unless that was the truest deepest sign of love that our God could ever show to us and for us. Take a look at this passage that I put in your crosswalk notes. 
This is what Jesus told his disciples in that upper room when they were meeting together for the last supper that he would eat with them. And he reminds them of this truth. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Is it not amazing to think that your God loves you so much that he was willing to lay down his life for you in the most horrible and horrifying fashion possible to be executed on a cross for us to pay the perfect price for our sins? Take a look at the John 5, verses 20 to 21 passage. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. It wasn't that the Father didn't love his Son. Clearly, Jesus knew that the Father loved him. But Jesus knew that there would be something beyond his death. An affirmation that that death had indeed paid for all of our sins. That we don't have to go around feeling guilty, ashamed, weighed down, burdened. As if we're carrying a whole load of baggage with us every day because of our sins. Jesus knew what came next. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. See, Jesus is able to take what we have in this life. And so, so often it's a life filled with struggles and pain and hardship. And he says to you, he says to me, I have life for you. I, I have freedom from guilt, shame, and sin. And beyond that, I have, I have freedom for you to be able to, to live a life knowing that God is backing you up in everything that you do. That you are no longer rejected by God. That you are no longer branded as sinner by him. But just the opposite. Now you're embraced by God. Loved by him. Called his dear child. His son. His daughter. And that because the father loved the son and gave him life. Now that son is able to give you life here. The strength to to lead a transformed, changed life with the power of God behind you. And even more importantly, an eternal life waiting for you after you die. There is something beyond this life. And there really is. That is not foolishness. And so if we look at what Jesus says sometimes and, and what he does, it's very, very important for us to understand that A lot of that is because it's coming out of his love. And you know, and I know, that sometimes when we love someone, we we might be prone to say things that sound foolish from someone else's perspective. If they don't understand that love. But when you step inside the love, you see things from a whole brand new perspective. And that's what I want to encourage you to do today. If you're here exploring what this Christianity stuff is all about, maybe you haven't been in church for a long time. Maybe for you, it's felt like that stuff that they teach over at church, that's just dumb. Who needs God? 
Let me encourage you. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to do it on your own, but empowered by the Holy Spirit, let me encourage you to switch perspectives. Step inside of Jesus' love and see things from a new vantage point that you can only see if you believe that Jesus' love is for you. And it doesn't matter what you've done in life. You may have stayed away from church, and many people do, because you felt guilty about something that you did a long time ago. You may have stayed away from church because someone hurt you a long time ago. And you're asking yourself, how can a loving God have allowed that to happen in my life? Whatever your reason was for never coming into church or for not coming in a long time, whether it's your guilt or someone else's, step inside today the amazing, bold, different paradigm love of Jesus Christ and know that he cares for you deeply. You matter to him. And that's why he went to the cross for you and died there for you. To guarantee you, every, every one of you, that he loves you. Here's our second point. God's foolishness is not only boldness, it is also love. God's, God's foolishness is really love. And here's our final point. Mark Twain once wrote, truth is stranger than fiction. And that's because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities and truth isn't. Think about that, right? Why is fiction obliged to stick to possibilities? Because if you're an author, as you're writing your fiction story, you're constantly going to be asking yourself, well, does that sound possible? Does that sound plausible? Because you know somebody's going to be trying to pick your plot apart. And if you bring in something that doesn't sound possible or plausible, your story's going to go down the drain. The truth doesn't have that limit. And there are so many amazing things. I have a, a couple of websites I enjoy just to, to look at for a good laugh in the morning. Uh, sort of truth is stranger than fiction websites. Just recently, I read two stories, one uh, about two guys showing up at a guy's business looking like men in black with their dark suits on, driving a government-issue car, and just nailing this guy to the wall for back tax payments. How much did he owe? Four cents. Four cents. There was a... uh, a whole another story about a guy that went to work in England and got kicked out of work and wrote a letter of protest asking why he couldn't come to work because he was dressing according to his religion and he had been removed from his work because of his religious garb. And what was his religion? He belonged to the International Church of the Jedi. And he was offended that he couldn't bring his lightsaber to work. Truth is stranger than fiction. 
and yet it is still truth. And it may seem strange to hear a man in our modern world stand up and tell you that it is not only plausible, it is not only possible, but it is real and it is true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Because he did. And here's the proof of it. The proof is that for 40 days, he was seen again and again and again. I'm telling you, if you would take the compiled evidence of all the times and all the people that saw Jesus alive after he was dead. Now, remember, he was dead. Those Roman executioners, expert executioners, had jammed a spear into Jesus' side. And separated water and blood had had come out of his side, indicating that he was dead. And they took him down from the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea took him and laid him in that tomb. And three days later, on the first Easter morning, he rose from that tomb. And that stone rolled back. Take a look in your crosswalk notes. Paul the Apostle writes in this same book, you'll notice it's 1 Corinthians. It's the, the same book that we're reading from that says, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Fifteen chapters later, he writes this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers. 500, circle that, will you? 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom, he says, as I write this, are still alive. Go ask them. Go talk to them if you don't believe me. If you don't want to take my word for it, they're still alive. Go talk to them though some have fallen asleep. Now I want you to imagine this parade entering any courtroom in our land today. 500 eyewitnesses, multiple occasions, different times, different places, different people. And is there one court in our land that would say it's all bogus? I can't believe it. Maybe you can, but I cannot believe that there is a court that would say that Jesus stayed dead. And that's why Paul says this. To say to you and me, still hundreds of years later, he rose in victory over sin, over death, over Satan. And his victory for you is real. And because he's victorious, you are victorious over sin and death and the devil. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits. That means he's just the first one of many, all of us, of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. 
For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. It might seem pretty awkward and foolish to the modern scientific mind to believe that a man could rise from the grave. But here you have it. And this is the heart and the core of our Christian faith. That because Jesus rose as the first fruit, one day when we die, and we all will, we don't have to be afraid anymore. Sin can't hold us. The grave can't hold us. Satan no longer has us locked up in his slavery. We are free. And as foolish sometimes as that might sound to our minds, it is true and it is real. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 10. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So here's our third point. Because God has revealed it to us by the power of his Holy Spirit, we know that God's foolishness, as strange as it may sound, is really truth. So do you want to have boldness for your life? You want to know real love, a whole completely new paradigm of love that's not responding to somebody else, but is just proactive, full, unconditional love? Do you want to know that paradigm of love in your life and to experience what that means in all your relationships? You want to experience what it means to have God love you faithfully in his son, Jesus Christ? Do you want to know what's really real? What's truly true? even if it's stranger than fiction, then I'm going to invite you to come back for the next four weeks. Because in the next four weeks, we're going to continue to dive into the foolishness of God based on the power of Jesus' resurrection. And we're going to hope to give you real truth from God's word, the Bible, real love and real courage and boldness for your life. I want to challenge you, in fact, take your communication card out for just a moment. Pull it out of your program, and I want you to pray about this. I want to ask you to take the Easter challenge. And here it is in your next steps in the crosswalk. Will you commit to joining us here at Crosswalk for the next four weeks and completing this, serious, seri- this foolishness of God series at Crosswalk. That's what I'm asking you to think about, pray about. To just join us, that's the commitment. Four more weeks. Would you be willing to commit to finishing this series out? We're going to talk about some of, some of the amazing bold promises God makes. That he answers all our prayers. Really? That he meets all my needs. That he forgives every sin, no matter how big, no matter how often repeated that I've ever committed. 
Are those bold promises really real? Or are they more of God's foolishness? That's the question we're going to answer in the next four weeks. If you'll take the Easter challenge, just write it down on the bottom of the backside of your card and say, I'll take the Easter challenge. Secondly, stay connected. Many of you have invited friends here today, and I want to thank you for doing that. What an awesome day it is. And now I'm going to ask you to do something kind of unusual. Invest in that, friend. Invest in a cup of coffee at Starbucks. After all, how could they resist that? And ask them how it went here at Crosswalk. Continue to build that friendship. Maybe you're the person that God invited. And if that person doesn't step forward and invite you for a cup of coffee, you invite them. I'll pay for it. All right? Julie, are you okay with that? She's like... All right? Get together for a cup of coffee. Finally, meditate on and memorize 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 25. What beautiful verses these are. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Happy Easter, everyone. He is risen. Beautiful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus for us. And we know that you say some really surprising things in the Bible. That your love for us is bold. That your love for us is immense and faithful. And that your truth is out of the box. And so, Lord, as we go through this series for the next four weeks, help us to learn a new paradigm, a new way of thinking. Help us to learn that because your son Jesus came and died on the cross, our sins are truly forgiven, freely forgiven. Help us to learn, especially today and as we move forward in the weeks to come, that your resurrection is a sign of amazing hope for the entire world. Because your son rose from the grave, we know that we too will rise and live eternally through faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Crosswalk Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at crosswalkphoenix.com.